Well, good morning again, Harmony. We are in our third week in a series that we're calling Raise the Bar. And our focus in this series is for us as Christians to look at where are we in our expectation with our relationship with God. And and what my challenge has been to you in this is for each of us to look at our own lives And think about what is it that we're trying to accomplish in this relationship with God. I remember in middle school, high school, when I started caring about grades, uh, there was a lot of classes where I could care less about the content. I did them because I had to. And sometimes in those courses, I would find myself, as I was nearing the end of the semester, realizing I was good in my grade that I had, And when it came to that final test of the year, I would figure out how many questions could I miss so that I could get the bare minimum grade that was necessary to stay in the A. I did not care about acing it. I didn't want 100%. I didn't want to study too hard. I wanted to do the bare minimum to still get an A. That's all I cared about. And that mentality I found only applied to those classes where I didn't care about the content. But then there were other topics, like history, where I loved it. And the reality is, is not only would I study everything the teacher gave me, but I would read stuff on my own. And in those places, I didn't care what the bar was set by anybody else. I had my own bar, which was to learn as much as I possibly could. Well, I think for a lot of us, when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship with the Bible, we're counting how many questions can we miss. We're asking ourselves, what's the bare minimum that I can do to get in? I told you before, I think many of us treat our relationship with Christ like fire insurance. Right? We're not excited about it. It's not something that we're, we're really jazzed about. We don't talk to a lot of people about it. We're not even really happy about the things that we have to do to keep our insurance active. But we know we need it. And we know in case something happens, which we really don't want to have happen, but in case it does, we want to be covered. We want to know that we'll be taken care of. That is not the mentality that we are supposed to have as Christians. And all of us, well, we realize that we could never earn our salvation. There should be such a deep desire and passion in us because of the gift that has been given us a gift that we could have never earned, that we should be desiring to run with everything we've got to get every day just a little bit closer to him, to know him just a little bit more, to experience his love to one degree higher than we have before, to just exemplify him a little bit more in our words or in our actions. And I'll be honest, I think for a lot of us, that isn't a daily desire. It's not a daily passion. In fact, I've met a lot of Christians who have fully wrapped their arms around the concept of, well, we're not perfect. God says we can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. And then we use this logic to justify anything in our lives that doesn't align to what the Word of God says. So we'll come to this and we'll read something that convicts us. We'll read something that hits us at the heart. We'll read something that maybe makes us feel ashamed or guilty. And we'll go, but, you know, this is how God made me. This is who I am. 
And we give this justification to ourselves to stop. Why? Why? Why are we settling? We should always be striving for more, for more, for more. You know, what always is interesting to me is people in their passions, whatever their hobbies are, they never settle. They never, ever settle. Wives, if your husband's a hunter, does he ever look up one year and go, you know what, I've shot enough bucks. I'm good. I don't need one more hunt trip. I don't need one more gun. I don't need one more of these events. I'm good. I've had enough. I've had my fill. No. There's always another one. There's always more. There's always something else you can have. There's always another technique you can learn. Right? You're always striving. I remember with the great basketball players of my generation that was always amazing is they would come back in the offseason and they would have developed a completely new tool. When I was a kid, the basketball player was Michael Jordan. Not this LeBron James guy, please. It's Michael Jordan, greatest of all time. If you don't believe me, go watch some tape, okay? But I remember one season, Michael came back. And when Michael, at this point, was already considered the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael came back, and all of a sudden, he had this turnaround jumper. And already, he was unstoppable. Already, he was the MVP. Already, he had won three championships in a row, but he spent all summer developing a brand new shot. And when he brought it, no one could stop it. And I love that because I went, what makes a guy who already is dominating everybody try to rebuild his entire game? Why? Because he had a passion for it. Now, what's really sad about that is his passion was putting a leather ball in a metal circle. For that, he could put endless hours into it. And you and I, we have dumb passions like this. I mean, I'll be just real honest. I spent four hours yesterday watching 22 men run a piece of grass trying to get a leather ball across a white line. Right? If you watch football, that's what you're doing. You're watching 22 guys try to kill each other, get a leather ball over a white line. And if they do that, we go nuts. Yet, how many of us would have struggled to spend four hours, shoot an hour, reading the almighty word of God. How many of us for that would have found that we were kind of bored or I didn't have the time, I'm too busy. We've got to ask ourselves, why are we limiting what we can do in our relationship with God? And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the story of Joseph. Because Joseph to me is one of those individuals in the Bible who gives you no outs. Right? You look at a lot of the biblical heroes, and there's this glaring character weakness in them. Right? Yes, they have a lot of good things going for them, but normally there's this one huge character flaw that just jumps out to you, and it makes you feel a little bit better. Right? When you read about David and then Bathsheba happens, yes, there's part of you that goes, my goodness, how could he do that? But there's another party that's like, glad to know normal people are used by God. Right? You read about Abraham, and you hear about this amazing faith he has, but then you see him lying and being a coward regularly, and you go, eh, I guess I could fit into the kingdom too. Right? These character flaws let us know that, yes, God can use regular people. It's one of the most beautiful things about him is he never just picks the elite. 
He picks anybody who is willing to serve him, whether they are flawed or not. And through his power and through his wisdom and through his greatness, he can take the most feeble tool and use it to paint a masterpiece. But that's not an excuse for you and I to stop moving towards him. That's not an excuse for you and I to stop developing, to stop growing, to stop striving for more. And so in your Bibles, go ahead, let's flip to Genesis chapter 39. And while you're flipping to verse 6, let me catch you up. So week one, we learned what? We learned Joseph came from a dysfunctional family. His father greatly favored him over his brothers to the point that his brothers hated him. They hated him so much that when they were about to kill him, they decided to be nice and said, you know what, we'll just sell him to foreign slaves and tell daddy's dead. That was them being nice to him. And so last week, we catch up with Joseph, and here he is. He's in Egypt, a foreign land, which is extremely racist towards Jews. He's a slave in foreign culture, foreign religion, everything against him. And what does he do? He works hard, he praises God, and he builds a successful reputation. Yes, he's still a slave, but he has shown Potiphar, his master, that he is loyal to Yahweh God and that everything he does is blessed by God. And he works and he works and he works to the point that Potiphar gives him command over everything in his household. Potiphar is a rich guy. Potiphar lets Joseph take care of the money. He lets him take care of his house. He lets him take care of his lands. It says Potiphar had no concern except for the food that he ate. Everything is trusted to Joseph. And I love this about Joseph because the circumstances of Joseph's life are filled with these ups and downs, just like ours. But spiritually, Joseph is always going closer and closer to God. He's one of these guys that just because the world turns against him, just because the circumstances of life push in upon him, he doesn't give up. Every day he looks to take a step closer to God. And so we find Joseph, yes, a slave, but at least respected, at least with some power, at least settling down into a life. And that's where we catch him in verse 6. Now, if you ask why Joseph has always resonated so much with me, I think you'll find it here in the beginning of this passage. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That has always just hit me at the heart. I feel this man's curse of being handsome in form and appearance. I can tell you, many of you, I know you see this beauty and you go, what a blessing, but I, I tell you, it's also a curse. In my life, I have gained weight, I have lost hair, just so I can be treated like a normal person. And it, uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I've never really known whether Nicole loves me for my character or for my devilishly good looks. It's one of those things I always have to doubt my whole life. I don't know why you guys are laughing. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, let me lie with him. Very direct woman. Very direct woman. She sees this handsome young man in the house. She sees him taking care of everything, and she goes, I want him. I want him. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. And now it happened one day that when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. And so she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. And so Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. There are a few things I really want us to, to think about when we look at this story. And most of them resolve, revolve around this concept of your and I's battle with sin. And so the first thing that Joseph reveals to us here in the pages of Genesis is that he reveals to us that sin is always, always something that is between you and God. And that's a huge thing for us to understand. Sin is always about your relationship with God. And why I think this is so important for us, brothers and sisters, is when we take sin out of the context of our relationship with God, it is much easier for us to justify our sin. Right? If Joseph were to ignore Potiphar, for, or I'm sorry, ignore God for a second, and just think about Potiphar and his wife, you could see a possible justification in his mind for why this might not be wrong. Right? He could walk in and go, I'm the one taking care of the house. I'm the one doing the hard work. I'm the one providing. I'm the one planning. I'm the one protecting. I'm the one doing the work. And he gets to sit there on his lazy butt every day doing nothing. If I am not the man of this household, do I not deserve to be treated like the man of this household? Do I not deserve to have joy? Do I not deserve to have love? Do I not deserve to have pleasure? Right? With people, it's always easy to justify your sin because everybody's flawed. Think how many times in your own life have you justified being petty, evil, mean, because the person you're doing it has done it to you. How many times a week do we justify those behaviors? Right? And if anybody ever calls us on it, we go, well, if you knew what they did to me. Right? And we actually convince ourselves that what we're doing isn't wrong. It's actually some kind of justice. Right? It's actually me getting back. 
But see, Joseph does something beautiful. One, he only focuses on the positive Potiphar. And so in the context of this decision that's laid at his feet, notice he doesn't start thinking about himself first. He thinks about people and he thinks about God. And so the first thing he goes is he goes, Potiphar's trusted me with everything. He's trusted me with everything. How could I do this to a man who's trusted me with everything? What would that do to my relationship with him? And then second, and most importantly, he then at the end of this justification with her goes, how could I do this to who? Against God. See, what Joseph realizes is that this action isn't just about him and the people around him. It's ultimately about him and his relationship with God. See, brothers and sisters, what he realizes is, is that sin is the thing that separates you and me from God. If we want to be close to him, if we want to be intimate with him, if we want to be in his peace, in his love, in his goodness, nothing will pull us away from that like sin. And so there's nothing in this where, where Joseph thinks about what she's offering and acknowledges that it would be unpleasant or undesirable. But what he does is he compares that to what he has with God. And he goes, how could I do this to God? How could I do this thing to God? That's what his focus is. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you, think about your own battles with sin in that way. It's not about other people. It's not about your pleasure. It's not about any other justifications. Will this action drive you closer to him? Or will it pull you farther away from him? And if it's going to pull you farther from him, why do you want it? Why would you want that in your life? The other thing I really love about Joseph is, Joseph says this. He's not ashamed to let people know the reason he won't sin. Right? He doesn't make up some excuse. He tells this woman, I belong to God and I won't do this. You're asking me to go against my Lord and that's not going to happen. He's direct with it. He's verbal about it. He's bold in it. Brothers and sisters, in this day and age, I see more and more Christians acting covertly holy. What I mean by that is they're still doing what's right, but they don't tell people why. Because they know that Christianity is offensive. They know that the word of God is considered outdated. They know that there's others who will be offended by this thing that you hold to God's word and let that dictate your actions. And so we behave holy, but we don't declare that holiness is for him. Brothers, every time we do what Joseph just did, where we declare that we act the way we act because of God, that is us evangelizing. That is us proclaiming the glory of God. That is us putting the gospel out there for people. Because when people see that your relationship with God is such that it doesn't just make you come to church on Sundays, but it changes the way you act every single day, that intrigues them. They may not always understand it. 
They may not even like it, but they will be intrigued by the fact that you are so passionate about your relationship with God that it's changing who you are day to day. Sin is always about our relationship with God. In Psalm 51.4, when David is talking about his sin with Bathsheba, he says this, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Who's he talking to? He's talking to God the Father. Even though David had an affair with a woman and murdered a man, yes, that impacted other people, but who does he really see the impact has been to? God. God gave him everything. God taught him better, and he betrayed what God had asked him to do. He knew this was about him and God. The second thing we see from this thing is that the battle with sin requires endurance. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, this is the hardest part of dealing with sin. Right? Notice, Potiphar's wife doesn't come to Joseph one day and go, lie with me. And he goes, no. And then she never asks again. Wouldn't that have been great? Right? Temptation is offered once. He says no. He's victorious. Never has to deal with it again. That'd be wonderful. But that's not how sin plays. Sin doesn't show up once and then disappear. It shows up over and over and over and over and over And with some sins, you will be victorious hundreds of times. And the one time you're not, it will wreck your life. If you've ever either dealt with addiction yourself or had addicts in your family, you know this well. Every day they can wake up. Every day they can fight that battle. Every day they can be victorious. And then they have one bad day. And everything goes to hell. And I've had addicts talk to me like, I, I made one bad decision. I had one drink, one drink. And I woke up three days later and I didn't know where I was or how I'd done what I did. This is where sin is difficult. I'll be real with you. I, I understand this in my own life as I try to lose weight. Right? I can go a whole week Every meal, every snack, making the right decision, right decision, right decision, right decision, right decision. And then I could have one bad Saturday and erase all that. All of it gone. Sin requires endurance. And where sin will get you is your enemy is prowling and he's waiting for those moments where you're not the strongest. Do you know why most of us fail with our goals late at night? Right? A lot of people who struggle, whether it's eating, whether it's pornography, whether it's any of these kind of repetitive sins, they normally struggle late at night. Why? Because you're exhausted from being disciplined all day. Right? All day you've said no, 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 no. And then at 10 o'clock at night, you're just tired and you're finally like, eh, okay. And the enemy pounces. You and I need to realize that while there is unbelievable joy all around us, 
right? All around us, God gives us gifts. Whether it's the beautiful sunset, whether it's the laughter of our children, whether it's the joy that we get from our friends, it's that feeling you have when you take a deep breath of fresh air. There are gifts every single day that God gives you, and you should enjoy them. Also, never forget you're behind enemy lines. Always. Always. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to what? To endure it. You do not defeat sin in one decision. You defeat it by being steadfast in all day, every day, over and over, holding your ground. To be honest, brothers and sisters, there are probably some sins, some flaws of your character that only you know. Because you've probably learned to be good enough to fight them internally so that externally no one ever sees it. Maybe it's patience, maybe it's anger. Who knows? But there are a lot of us who have things inside of us that we have learned to fight and fight and fight and fight to the point that our friends and family don't even see it that often. But you know, you know that if you ever wake up and don't pay attention to it, it'll get you. And so you're ready. You're fighting. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, when it talks about the armor of God. It says this. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. A couple of years ago, we talked about this passage, and there's an interesting thing about that verb, put on. It's an active verb, meaning that there is no thought of this being a thing you repeat. It's a one-time thing, meaning God's expectation is you put your armor on and you keep it on. Every day that armor is on. Why? Because you're behind enemy lines. And the enemy doesn't announce before it strikes. Right? You don't get a five-minute warning that, hey, like in five minutes... You're about to go under spiritual attack. So if you want to go ahead and pray up, get your Bible ready, get your support group around you, why don't you guys get prepared? And then in five minutes, we're going spiritual warfare. That'd be nice, right? It'd be great to get a warning like that. But that's not how it works. It's when you least expect it. It's when you've relaxed. It's when you've gotten comfortable. It's when you're a little lazy. That's when they strike, and that's when you give in. I hate to say this to you, but the reality is of being a Christian, we don't ever go with the flow. Because the flow of this world never leads you to the throne of God. You wake every day with intention. You wake every day with purpose. You wake every day with your head on a swivel because you know all around you is sin. And it's trying to pull you away from the Father. And you know that your only peace, your only joy, your only happiness comes not in this junk that the world offers, but when you're in his hands. That's where rest comes from. That's where peace comes from. We've got to put that armor on and keep it on. At the end of that passage in verse 13, it says, I'm sorry, 
at the end of that passage in verse 18, it says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be alert. We've got to be aware of where we stand, who we're around and what surrounds us. Because a lot of times we put the guard down and that's when we fall. Third thing. Sometimes you just need to run away from sin. Just run away from sin. I don't know what it was about that day, but Joseph knew that day this wasn't going to be a day for talking. The way that woman came at him that day, he knew the only way to escape was to what? Get out. And he ran. Some of you need to be more real. Some of you have lied to yourself and told you that you are spiritually strong enough to go to very bad places, surrounded by very bad people, doing very bad things, and you think you'll be able to go there and be holy. Let me just be real, that's stupid. My dad told me something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. He said, not much good happens after midnight. There's really not a whole lot of good things that happen anywhere after midnight. So ask yourself, why are you going there? Do you think at 2 a.m. in some bar downtown that you're going to find holiness? You think that's where you're going to share the gospel? You think that's where you're going to teach people about the brilliance and love of Jesus Christ? No. Yes, you and I need to realize we live in the world, but we are not of the world. And some of us, we need to really be honest that we're not strong enough yet to be sent to certain fronts. Some of us need to realize there are certain environments that we will lose if we go there. And from those places and from those people, we should flee. A lot of Christians have good desires, but one of the hardest things for them is breaking off the old relationships. And for some of us, there are people whose lives are so embedded in sin, so embedded in doing the wrong things, that you shouldn't be around them. Because they're just going to pull you down. Joseph walked in that day and he saw that look in that woman's eyes and he saw the way she came at him and he knew if I stay here, nothing good will happen. I need to leave. More of us need to be smart that way. You remember Eve in the garden? Eve actually fails long before she takes the bite. She fails because when she's by the tree that she's been warned to not be by Second, when the serpent comes and starts talking to her about that fruit and how good it is, she stays and listens. As he continues to talk, it tells us that she looks at it and she starts to evaluate how it looks and she starts to think about how it might taste. And then she pulls it and then she eats. The moment that fool showed up trying to lie to that woman, she should have been gone. She should have just left. But she didn't. And we're for honest, brothers and sisters, for a lot of us, that's how sin happens. We're in the wrong place 
at the wrong time, there's plenty of red flags and we ignore them. And then there's a moment where you no longer could take a step back, you just fall off the cliff. More of us need to be honest about our strength, whether it's certain environments or certain people, and realize sometimes we just need to run. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it fully grown, brings forth death. And so let me just real quick hamper on that point. Some of us, we, we hear messages of sin, and we're like, man, God is just no fun. It's Mr. Rules. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Right? It's why most Christians are perceived as being fun. Now, I'll be honest with you. If your friends are only fun when they drink, then you have the bad friends. You need more interesting people in your life. You need people that you actually enjoy hanging out with when your vision and your mind are not cloudy. I like the kind of people that are fun and enjoyable to be around with when I'm completely sober-minded. That's awesome. Those are good people. If I need to be chemically inhibited to think you're enjoyable, we probably shouldn't be friends. should raise the bar on who those people are in my life. But what he's telling us here is there's a journey where we think and we dream and we ponder and then we start to act and then we're there. And the reason that God hates sin is not because he cares about you not having fun. It's because he is honest about what sin is. Sin is death. And he wants you to have no death. He knows that these little things that present themselves as fun or present themselves enjoy as enjoyable in their fullness are nothing but death. And he doesn't want that for you. That's why he's warning you. Hey, I know that thing sounds good, but it's not. I know what it is. It will kill you. And so more and more of us need to have this stiff arm when it comes to sin. Too many Christians, especially in their entertainment, are opening up their doors and inviting in sin. Saying, please, come on into my house. Come on into my mind. Come on into my heart. And then we're shocked when we fall off the wagon. Yeah, you've been inviting death in. What do you think was going to happen? We've got to stand firm in that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he's talking about sexual sin, Paul tells us this, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Right? He doesn't really think about it, resist it. He says what? He says, flee. Don't even stay around it. Get the heck out of there. We've got to learn to do this that sometimes the bravest and smartest thing to do is to run because nothing good will happen. And that's what Joseph shows us. Now, this is a really bummer last point to end on, but it's a really important one. And I think it's really important because, I'll be honest, sometimes when I get home and I turn on TV and I see sermons on TV, I see people lying to you about this. I see a lot of people telling you that if you pray, if you read your Bible, if you go to church, God's going to make everything good. 
And I hate to break it to you, but that's not exactly how it works. God will make everything good in here. He will fill your soul. He will fill your spirit with things no man can touch. He will give you peace and he will give you love and he will give you a purpose that nobody can take from you. And they will be things that keep you moving forward no matter how dark that day is. But sometimes here in the world, it's still hard. Sometimes here in the world, you can be doing everything right and you still will lose. And that's what we see with Joseph. We see that sometimes the good guy still loses. Right? Joseph does what he's supposed to do. He's tempted, and every day he stands against that temptation. And when he stands against it, he declares, I do this for my Lord, and I do this to show love to Potiphar. I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. And then when the sin temptation increases, he runs. He gets out of there. But what still happens? The lies are still believed. What he's worked for is still taken from him. And at the end of the day, he now finds himself in jail. Sometimes the good guy will lose here on earth. Now, why do I want to tell you that? I want to tell you that so that when it happens to you, you don't lose faith. I always tell the youth, it's important to know these things because they set your expectation. Right? If I'm in a track meet and I get punched in the face, that's going to surprise me. Because when you run track, you're not supposed to touch each other. When you run track, nobody ever gets punched. And so if you're running track and all of a sudden someone just knocks you out, you go, what was that? That's not fair. That's not right. Somebody do something about this. But if I tell you we're going to go box, you really shouldn't be surprised when you get popped in the face. In fact, you should be looking for it. You should be moving away from it. And when it does hit you, you should go, yeah, he kind of told me that was going to happen. And so what I don't want you guys being foolish in is going outside those doors going, this is just going to be a track me. I'm just going to run as fast as I can towards God and nothing's going to stop me. No, when you walk out those doors, you're in a boxing match, folks. In fact, it's more like MMA. There are no rules. They'll kick, punch, bite, gouge, pull, do all kinds of stuff they ain't supposed to do. Your enemy will do anything and everything to bring you down. And so when you get clocked in the face, don't look around and go, well, that's not fair. Dust yourself up, get back up and go bring it. Because I got the spirit of God right here in me and I ain't giving up this ground. I am planting my feet in his word and you will not move me. Because I know no matter how badly my body wants to break, his body will not. His power will strengthen me. His might will stand and I'm not moving. We have got to be a people that know that sometimes dark days will come, but we're not going to be afraid of them. We're going to stand boldly and strongly and proudly in the word of God in those moments and not give up. And what we'll see next week is Joseph doesn't give up. That's why I love this guy. 
Every time he builds and works and works to achieve a pinnacle and it comes crashing down, he never throws a pity party. He cleans himself up and he starts building back up. Building back up. And you can throw him down again and guess what he does? He cleans himself up and he keeps working back. Every time you can just imagine him looking at the world going, bring it. I've got the God of my fathers by my side and he's not going to let me stay here. He's not going to let me fall. That's the kind of courage we need in the church. I leave you with this. Hopefully I leave you with this. In Romans 5 it says, more than that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, when we go through the fire, that's when we're shaped. When we go through the pressure, that's when we become stronger. That's when we can have a peace in our hearts knowing I am growing closer to what God wants me to be today. I am being shaped by my Father in heaven. And if we can see that, we can rejoice no matter how hot the flames around us are. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for telling us stories of people like Joseph. People that remind us, Lord, that no matter what this world does to us, no matter what circumstances we face, that we can praise you, that we can resist temptation, that we can glorify you, God, and that nobody can stop us each day from taking steps closer to you. Father, we love you and we ask you to strengthen us with your might. In the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. As Maria leads us in a closing song, I'll be down here at the front. Brother James and Brother Matt and our deacons will be in the back. And so if there's just anything on your heart that you want to know that somebody else is praying for, please feel free to come up and see one of us, and we'll be glad to pray with you. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek us out after. We are here to pray with you and to help you along your journey uh, throughout this life. Maria. Let's all stand. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed the victory is won he is risen from the dead and i will rise when he calls my name no more 
Such a blessing to worship with you all. I remind you just again on next Saturday from 2 to 5, we've got Harvest Festival out here. Invite your friends, invite your family, share the, uh, the news with everybody that you can. We'd love to see some folks that we don't know come on out. And then on the 30th, uh, we do have our uh, business meeting at 7 o'clock uh, Wednesday night. All right, so remember those two dates. I remind you of two things. God's given you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And you have a mission to go outside those doors and go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Have a great week. I love you guys.